Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 131. My guest is Seth Goldstein, an analyst from Morningstar. Seth's 2021 appearance about 13 months ago was the most downloaded Global Lithium Podcast episode of the year. Since his last appearance, a lot has changed both in the EV markets and the lithium markets. Seth covers both. Seth is now following Tesla, which was not the case when we last spoke. As far as lithium companies goes, Seth is responsible for following Albemarle, SQM, Livent, and more recently, Lithium Americas. We're going to talk about all those companies. It's a very interesting discussion, which is brought to you by my good friends at Brinefield Services Company, Zolandes. I think of Zolandes as the slumberger of the lithium industry. You can find out more at zelandes.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. Without further ado, Seth Goldstein. Seth Goldstein, welcome back to the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. Happy to be back. We spoke about 13 months ago. It seems both the EV world and the lithium world have undergone greater growth trajectories than either one of us contemplated at the time. How has your view of the next few years of EV growth changed in the last year? You know, it's been accelerated at least in the medium term, I think we're going to see higher EV adoption, you know, driven uh, largely by Europe and in the U.S., where they're going to build out more chargers and help alleviate some of that road trip anxiety that, in my mind, still weighs on the mass market consumer. The more chargers that are out there and then in Europe uh, offering a very generous subsidy program that takes away the cost and the functional anxieties that, that tend to hold back the mass market consumer. And that puts EVs in the mind of more consumers when they're going to purchase their next vehicle. Can you parse from a regional perspective, the type of models that are selling, there aren't that many offerings in the U.S. yet still, but have you seen any change from what you were thinking when we last talked? I have have looked at the different regions and in China, the the big surprise to me is that the consumer preference continues to shift to larger vehicles. And so, you know, consumers are buying more uh, light trucks, which is, they go pickup trucks, SUVs, minivans, you know, the vehicles built on a larger platform. And for EVs, that, that tends to mean, one, you have fewer options, but then two, you're more likely to have an EV where the range isn't as good and a longer recharge time. And so you're likely to see um, perhaps more of those consumer anxieties remain for the larger vehicle market. 
So, you know, in my mind, that that's what's likely to favor hybrids in a place like China. And I've actually increased my hybrid adoption forecast in that region uh, just due to the shifting consumer preference for uh, light trucks versus cars. Well, having lived in China for quite a few years, there's just so many 40, 50 story apartment buildings. It's a challenge if you live in one of those apartment buildings to where you, where are you going to charge your EV? Have you seen any work done on that? I mean, there, there is a lot more charging in China than there is right now in the United States, but how has the charging development to the extent that you're able to follow it during COVID, (laughs) um, how, how has that changed in China? And what are your thoughts on, on the U.S.? We talked a fair amount about charging infrastructure. And how have you seen that develop uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, so to, to start with China, it's very unique from an EV standpoint because less than a third of consumers charge at home. You contrast that to the U.S. and Europe where over two-thirds of consumers charge at home. So, you know, the availability and the need to find public charging is much greater in China. And so you're seeing the government respond by building a lot of charge points throughout cities and then building more fast chargers located along highways. Um, You're seeing Europe and the U.S. do this too, but it's at a slower pace and it can go slower while EV adoption can grow just because there's less need for public charging on a day-to-day basis. You still need it for road trips if you're going on the highway, leaving your city, but largely if you charge at home every night, then you don't have to worry about finding a place to charge on the street or when you go to the grocery store or go out to dinner. Based on what you just said, do you feel like a battery swapping technology will be more of a China story than (laughs) will happen in Europe or the U.S. just because more people can charge at home? Uh, outside of China? I think you could see that as a, as a strategy um, that could work on a limited basis in China. You know, it's certainly, if you can get a battery swap in and out in less than 10 minutes, you know, you're, you're talking then about the same amount of time at a rest stop as you would have with your internal combustion engine vehicle filling up your gas tank. So I think that could be a strategy, but you know, in order to do that, you have to build out a battery swap network. And that takes a lot more infrastructure than just building a few chargers where there's already existing electricity. I don't think America's prepared. We've had a hard enough time getting just regular fast charging uh, implemented. But uh, I just wondered, given you do follow that space uh, in in more detail than somebody like me would, uh, just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. What's happened in Europe since we last talked in terms of are they maintaining a robust development of charging infrastructure? Uh, it seemed to me that everything in Europe related to EVs except for lithium production was was moving along pretty quickly. Yes, yes. And um, as a part of the pandemic response, Many European governments started mandating chargers being built and, you know, offered subsidies and grants to fund the development of EV chargers as part of the economic stimulus package, which I think is a very smart move to do since if you want to drive long-term EV adoption, 
the number one thing that I think governments can and should do is fund the build out of high speed chargers. That's what, you know, if a consumer can take a road trip, whether they drive an EV today or not, and starts to see fast chargers at every gas station where they stop, all of a sudden, you know, that's going to go a long way towards overcoming that anxiety of, you know, can I use an EV just like I use my ICE today? And, you know, I, I think Europe has done a, a accelerated their build out of charging infrastructure, which will help accelerate EV adoption. Since we last talked, you have started as part of your job uh, following Tesla. Yes. They have done a great job of getting to where they are today, but now they have more challenges and more geographies. What are your thoughts on Texas and how fast that rolls out? Berlin, what do you think the challenges and the upsides are for Mr. Musk's company? Well, any anytime you're opening up a new mass manufacturing site, there's always going to be some startup challenges and potential for hiccups along the way. But, you know, taking a longer term view with Tesla, I don't worry about that too much. So if the plants, if the plants both start up in early 2022 or late 2022, I don't see that as that big of a deal. Um, the bigger issue for Tesla, in my mind, is when will they start to begin producing the Cybertruck and the semi-truck because the Model Y has become a very popular selling vehicle and continues to, you know, take share from other luxury vehicles, whether they're EVs or hybrids or ICEs. But Tesla is actually late to the party now in producing a light pickup truck. You know, you have Ford starting out later this year. Rivian's already starting to produce a little bit. GM is starting to produce theirs next year. If Tesla doesn't produce next year, then, you know, they'll be fourth or potentially even fifth to the, to the game of a pickup truck. And then they no longer have that first mover advantage that has, you know, solidified them as the best EV maker in the world. Well, the, the F-150 is certainly a popular vehicle. And just anecdotally, I ask every F-150 driver I see what they think about the electric. And I haven't had anybody say anything negative about it. That's been the shocker to me is it seems that there's a huge pent-up demand. When you're looking at as an analyst of Tesla and you know what you just said there, you know, late to the party, maybe with and they have a lot more competition probably in this segment. Ford's all, all in on the F-150 in regular passenger car side may be a little more of a challenge for them. But then you have Rivian, you have the, I guess, the electric Silverado. I keep seeing more, you know, my Twitter feed, I get an ad for that thing uh, every every day, it seems like. As you look at this, do you think it's mostly an execution issue for the Fords and the GMs? Or what do you think? Do you agree that the, the market is really there for the electric truck? I think so. I think when you look at the strategy, you know, you're, you're seeing a range that gets you to three or 400 miles for the truck. One, once you're over 300 miles, I think consumers really don't worry as much about what the range is. You know, it, it's similar to no one buys a car based on the size of the gas tank, right? You just know it's going to get you to where you need to go. Once, once the EV can go 300 and certainly once it can go 400 miles, 
I think it's just another stat on the car that's, you know, maybe cool to auto enthusiasts, but for the mainstream consumer, it's not something you care about as much. So the first thing I think that Ford and GM have done that's that's been a smart way to enter the EV market is look to produce EVs with a long enough range that, you know, you're not going to worry about, the consumer doesn't have to worry about, can this go far enough? And then second, when you look at their EV models, they're basically just leveraging existing designs. You know, the F-150 doesn't look too terribly different, the EV version versus the regular existing truck. So you're not asking someone to get into this very futuristic new design of a car. You're just basically saying, hey, if you like the F-150, here's another different type of the truck to consider. Assuming Tesla can execute on the Cybertruck production-wise, what's your gut feeling on is that going to be a, a special niche vehicle and the guys who are driving F-150s now are going to be driving electric F-150s rather than Cybertrucks? Do you look at it that way or do you think that Elon's got another game changer? Yeah, I, I think Elon's long-term goal for the Cybertruck of a quarter million vehicles sold a year is reasonable. And that still puts them well below the Ford F-150, which sells over a million vehicles a year. So, you know, I, I think here, here's a case where Tesla has reasonable expectations. You know, they, I don't think it's a case where they're assuming to get to their 20 million vehicle a year aspirational target, they need to sell 10 million Cybertrucks. You know, it's a reasonable number. I think they will continue to focus on the Model 3 and the Model Y as their main selling vehicle. All right. One last question on on the electric side here. Uh, And happy National Battery Day, by the way. I I wasn't aware until this morning that there was a National Battery Day. Is the electric truck thing going to be really unique to North America from a broad acceptance? I mean, if you look at Europe, you look at China, do you think trucks will eventually get their place there. in in the ICE world it seems like the United States is the market for for that that kind of truck but do you, do you think that's the way it'll stay or do you think electric trucks may for some reason have more appeal in the other regions that have faster growing EV markets I think pickup trucks will stay a largely North American phenomenon you know I'm including Canada and Mexico because they sell a decent amount of pickup trucks in those countries too. But I, I think you'll largely see these same type of cars continue to be sold regardless of the powertrain. We would like to thank our sponsor, Zoyandez, who prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Recently, a junior lithium explorer in Argentina was able to save up to 20% in their exploration costs through the use of Zalandas Technology Services. To learn more, visit Zalandas.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. Well, let's transition to lithium. First, in the context of we had a couple of 2021 fourth quarter earnings calls in the last couple of days. And yes, what were your thoughts on what you heard take it in any order you want to, focusing on on both price and what they were saying about the market. Did anything surprise you? You know, I'd, I'd say 
from a market standpoint, not at all. I continue, I expected to hear that the market was going to remain very tight, undersupplied. I think we've seen that in the, you know, weekly uh, published indices. We see that when companies like Alchem have guided to, you know, first half pricing, realized pricing for them over 20,000 a ton. So I expected uh, Albemarle and Livevent would announce very similar, uh, you know, outlooks for the market that conditions will remain tight for the foreseeable future, which, you know, I think will last at least until the middle part of this decade. Well, a 2025 number that, that Albemarle put out of 1.5 million uh, tons of lithium carbonate equivalents, that was a significant increase. The way I look at it, I think a million tons is about as, would have to have almost perfect execution across the board on what I view as tier one projects. How do you internalize that? If that is correct, then it would say that there's going to be upward price pressure probably for the rest of the decade, because they are also saying that they, they upped their 2030 number to 3 million. And we were at 300,000 in 2020. To me, when you're talking about the 2025 demand number, it starts to be a little more of a theoretical exercise that's detached from reality. You know, whether you're at a million or 1.5 million, or if you want to be super bullish and put it at 2 million, because why not? I don't think supply will be able to get to a million tons by 2025. So at that point, it's every, all incremental demand is just a theoretical exercise that, you know, is probably mounted in some reality of discussions with battery makers and automakers. But, you know, if the lithium supply can't keep up, then, you know, that's going to continue to be the limiting factor on where demand will shake out. Well, when you look at uh, all the investment that's going into battery plants and all the OEM announcements, do you think they just assume the lithium would be there? It's becoming more and more of a, a question because it doesn't seem like most of the OEMs are, are, are worried about it yet. It, it, seems, it seems to me that the OEMs looked at the price decline that happened from 2018 to 2020 and thought, oh, this is like any other resource, low prices will be there, supply will ramp back up, everything will be fine. The big difference, and I, I think here's where they made the mistake, is when you're talking the level of sustained demand growth that we're forecasting for lithium and that solid double digits for at least the next decade, if not more, you know, you're talking supply needs, new supply needs to come online five, six, seven times the quantity of today's supply. And that's different from every other resource in the world where you largely have a lot of underutilized or unused supply that can quickly come back into the market over a two to three year period. Whereas the lithium supply is all new incremental supply that's not yet operating. So the time for OEMs, if they were getting serious about developing their EV supply chain, the time to invest for 2025 would have been, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018. And that didn't happen. And so now we're leading to a big supply crunch that is going to last in the medium term for the foreseeable future. I found it interesting that Abelmarl talked about it, 88,000 tons of production last year and they had some more volume from tolling 
So it, it's it's roughly a hundred thousand, not dissimilar probably from what we'll hear from SQM uh, next week. Those are the two biggest producers of lithium on this side of the planet. How optimistic are you that that Albemarle can hit the two hundred thousand number that they put out for themselves for twenty twenty five? Well, when when you look at that number. A lot of it is plants that are already under construction or brownfield, which I think from a technical uh, expertise and as far as what you need to build the, the supporting infrastructure and those type of things, you don't need to do that for brownfield expansion. So I'm more optimistic that once they've ramped up this wave, they'll be able to more easily ramp up future plants because essentially the way I understand it, they're building the same plant next to where the current plant already is. So they've already done it before. They, they have the team in place. They likely have all the subcontracting and engineering firms. So I think it's always easier to expand on an existing site than to build out a new site. But at the same time, I am still forecasting Albemarle sells under 200,000 tons in 2020, 2025, excuse me. I, I don't think it'll be by much, but I think it will be a little bit. I think your logic is sound. The only counter to that is Lenegra 2. It, it took Lenegra 2 four years at least to ramp up, and that was a brownfield. Hopefully, they learned the lessons there. I think around 200,000 isn't that much of a stretch, mostly because they have acquired capacity in China that that makes up a large a large part of that number i think if you were just relying on on their ability to execute projects what did you think about the change in the joint venture with minres that seemed that seemed odd to me it seemed like chris ellison yet again <laughs> got the better end of a deal but you're the analyst what do you think well, I, from my understanding, I think there's going to be a payment involved for the 10% stake um, in Wajina. So we'll have to see where the final terms shake out. But it it is a little weird that Albemarle would want to revisit existing arrangements instead of just planning new joint development projects. If they're going after new greenfield sites and looking to expand capacity, Continuing and expanding their joint development arrangement does make sense. And I agree with Albemarle that it does take some risk off the table because you have a partner there um, to work through issues and finance the project and that type of thing. But revisiting the existing supply is, is a little bit of a head scratcher. But at the same time, we'll, we'll have to see where the final terms shake out to see, you know, was it a good or bad deal for Albemarle or is it a fair deal for both parties? Let me ask you a similar question uh, with, re- with respect to Livent. They're now talking about getting to 60,000 tons in 2025, yet they have announced and delayed and announced and delayed and announced and delayed on the really the first significant expansion of Ombre Muerto. So when you're modeling that, what kind of a haircut do you give them or do you think, hey, they they're building a brownfield alongside the same resource? What are your thoughts on Livent's expansion plans? 
Well, for, for all the lithium producers I cover, I am modeling the capex and the capacity to be ramping up. And, and for Libent, I am modeling them to spend the money through 2025 to get to the 60. But I don't think the production will be anywhere near 60 for a, at least two to three years after that. So uh, there always is that lag. And, you know, some of it is, even if you hit your construction schedule, some of it's getting qualified and ramping up production, all those normal things. But, you know, then there always does seem to be a little bit of a lag. And so in order for me to accelerate my volume forecast, I'll need to see Livevent execute this year and next year. I'm bringing on those first 20,000 tons. And then let's talk about the next 20,000. Fair enough. When you look at their strategy, there was a lot of, well, we'll sell carbonate opportunistically and so on and so forth. But when you look at the way the market's developing, and we'll, we'll get into that a little more in a minute, that whole lowest cost, when you figure the Chilean royalties in, lowest cost carbonate producer on the planet, yet they're making, they're, they're still focused on hydroxide. Do you see them unwinding that strategy a little bit? Or they continue to talk like they're all in on hydroxide, but I don't know. I see some cracks in that armor. Where do you think they go? Let's just say they get to to 40,000 tons in, in 2025. What would you think the composition of that would be, hydroxide versus carbonate? Or have you modeled that, or am I getting too far ahead of myself? I, I have not modeled it because they, they have seemed to make some, you know, one-off comments on the past few earnings calls about the need for flexibility in what they produce. And that tells me that they're looking at the market and saying, maybe it's going to be a little more even between carbon and hydroxide than we initially thought. Why not play to our strength and also offer a very low cost, uh, you know, battery quality carbonate that can be used in electric vehicles and energy storage systems as well. So, you know, to me, I think, Livevent is still going to focus primarily on hydroxide, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see carbonate become a more firm part of their growth plans, especially as they're selling in China, where I think it's still going to be largely carbonate-based batteries dominating EVs. Let's switch gears a little bit, still on the lithium theme, but lithium with respect to Tesla. Tesla's got a huge future demand for lithium. They've done a good job up till now. I think everybody wanted to be able to say they were doing business with Tesla. But when they start getting into the to the huge numbers, and you know, they've had a change. They weren't buying any carbonate or their supply chain wasn't buying any carbonate two years ago or two and a half years ago. And now Elon's saying more than half their vehicles will be based on iron cathode or lithium iron phosphate. How do you look at that challenge as an analyst of Tesla? And where do you think the comments that they've made about actually either producing in Texas from spodumene or doing doing their table salt in (laughs) Nevada clay? you have to, as a Tesla analyst, I guess you have to think through what their procurement strategy looks like. And so how how would you, uh, how would you evaluate them? When, when I hear about Tesla, either converting spodumen or producing their own lithium chemicals, 
right now, I tend to think of that more as R&D. And they're just trying to figure out, can we do this? What would it take to do this? But at the same time, you also see them continuing to sign supply agreements. Now, some of those are with producers who are not yet in operation. But, you know, that, that tells me Tesla realizes we need to be serious about getting as much lithium as possible. And while, yes, in theory, Tesla would have all the lithium they need in Nevada to power EVs all around the world and, you know, add the brines and the ocean water, I think when they're signing all these agreements and continuing to try to make their own lithium, it shows they're trying to figure out where that lithium is going to come from in three to five to 10 years from now to meet, you know, be able to, so they can be able to fill their new factories uh, and produce the capacity. Do you believe that Elon and the whole aura of Tesla helps them with, it's not going to help them with price if high prices stay for a long time, because you really, you can't contract around that over a long period of time. But at the end of the day, volume is going to be more important than price in my mind, especially as you're trying to grow that company. Do you think they have an advantage just as Tesla over somebody like a VW or a Ford or a GM or Hyundai, whoever? Yeah, I think Tesla has had very strong relationships with a lot of the major lithium producers. And so as they're sign- looking to expand their volumes, I think that that does perhaps give them a leg up if they want to sign, you know, volume contracts. I, don't, I agree with you. I don't think it gets them anything as far as price is concerned. But, you know, if Tesla comes to, you know, an Albemarle or a Livan or a Ganfang and says, hey, we need to double our lithium supply over the next five years, I think they know Tesla's serious and they know Tesla is ramping up their own factories and ramping up their own production. So I, I think that does help them secure volumes, be it at, at market prices. As you model supply, I have a, a question that I've talked about, but I don't hear anybody else really talking about it. And that is the fact that as you build gigafactories, there is a lot of scrap up to 30, 35%. In some cases, I've heard even higher numbers than that for a period of months as the new plants come into operation. And obviously, when you see Redwood Materials, Redwood Materials gets a lot of their feedstock from from J.B. Straubel's alma mater uh, at Tesla. How do you factor that in when you take a supply model out a few years? Or or are, are you so focused on just the companies you're covering that you you don't bother with that. In my mind, there's a lot of lithium molecules that are going to have to make a round trip through scrap and then recycling before they actually get to a battery pack or a usable battery pack. Has that ever ever entered your mind? Or am I uh, am I the only one who thinks that's one of the other dark sides that that really limits uh, the supply from coming back into balance. Well, that that could certainly um, prolongate the supply crunch we're in right now. If you know you are ramping up new factories and to get the factory going, get your production process down, you end up with a you know higher scrap rate initially. I do think that would come down over time as companies get more experience opening up gigafactories. So. That may be just a near to medium term thing and not 
every plant that's open for the next 20 years will have see a, such a high scrap rate. But, you know, at the same time, um, that will mean that you would have this secondary supply that will start to be important to the market that doesn't just come from used batteries, which, you know, we won't see any meaningful supply come from for at least the next decade or so. Well, actually, it's a blessing and a curse because for the recyclers, it's a blessing because they, they're going to have more feedstock. They're not going to have to wait until end of life batteries. Uh, they will have, uh, and I think you're seeing contracts signed now uh, that are that are predicated on uh, turnkey of of battery scrap. But it's it's an interesting phenomenon to watch. I agree with you that a Tesla is going to be better at gigafactory two and three than they were but what you're seeing in europe there's a lot of new guys that that's i think you've got a three to five year window where northvolt starts up northvolt hasn't done it in the past they can hire as many people as they want to from other operations but it's it's still new ground i i don't mean to pick on them specifically but uh that's just the first new name that came to mind it's an interesting potential challenge last time we talked we might have, I don't know if we agreed, but, you know, we're talking about the EV, as EV penetration developed, their average size of a battery is gravitating to the 50 kilowatt hour range because there's, and you've already referenced in China, there's a bigger bias to get the, the larger car. Uh, even if you live in an apartment building and, and <laughs> you can't charge it in your garage. What is your latest on average battery size when you when you model the EV world or when your team at Morningstar models it? I still think it's going to be about 50 kilowatt hour battery size. While you will see more larger vehicles in the U.S. and China, you know, I, I am seeing a higher EV adoption rate in Europe where there's still a preference for smaller cars. So I think those will somewhat offset each other and the, the global average battery size shouldn't change too much. That's a great segue to the next topic, Europe, with a maybe a an overall bias for a smaller car than than certainly North America. Yet you continue to hear about high nickel cathode in all these battery plants in Europe. How do you think it plays out? Do you think that now that there's a viable alternative in, in the form of LFP battery packs that can power a Model 3, or, those aren't small cars. How far do you think LFP runs? And do you think Europe actually, as some of these plants are getting built, there's there's LFP lines or lines at least putting out LFP battery packs, even if they have to source the cells initially from somewhere else? Yeah, it's. I, I think you're going to see LFP become an important part of EVs. And I think it's going to depend by automaker, but you know, you look at Tesla having signed an expansion uh, for the BYD blade battery. And, you know, that tells me that they're comfortable that the European consumer will still find that car to be uh, perfectly suitable for their driving needs. You know, you add the increased, um, fast chargers that are being built throughout Europe's highways. And maybe the European EVs will be on that low end of around 300 miles or so, but that'll still be suitable for the consumer. Whereas 
you know, maybe a place like the U.S., people who are driving SUVs and pickup trucks may need the 400-mile range. But, you know, I think the European market is going to be more suitable for, for a mix. And, you know, if LFP has continues to be cheaper and continues to be more available than, than NMC batteries and has less of the, you know, technical issues that you may see when you're initially producing an NMC battery, I think that will continue to grow and um, be an important share of the total European EV market. Well, if you just look at cathode within the nickel family, how is your EV team looking at which NMC technology in the next three to five years, 811 or is it 622? What, what flavor of an NMC are you modeling as uh, the winner? We're modeling what we call high nickel. And basically that means at least 80% nickel, but could be up to 90%. And then some combination of manganese, cobalt, and aluminum making up the difference in the battery. So I think each battery maker is going to have their own unique formulation. And some will be closer to 80% nickel. Some will be closer to 90%. Some like Tesla may use a little more aluminum than others, although, you know, GM's Altium battery is also an NCMA. So, you know, I think, I think you're, you're starting to see, it, it's just going to be like anything else where everyone will have their own technology, but it will generally be, you know, within that similar range of, of each other. It's an interesting topic and it's one that continues uh, to be debated Let's let's talk about the two lithium companies you follow that that we haven't dug into at all. Uh, SQM, obviously, they haven't had their final their, their Q4 report out yet, but they they gave every signal of what they thought their production was going to be for 2021 in in their last conference call. What do you think that they produce? in 2025? How do you model that? And then how do you model what they're do- trying to do in Australia with West Farmers? So I, I think they will be producing somewhere around 180,000 tons by 2025. A lot of that capacity is already under construction and they have proven the ability to ramp up volumes. Now, perhaps there's been some quality issues. Um, we, we've seen their price come more in line with Alchem, which Alchem is by their own admission only producing around 50% battery quality material. So, you know, perhaps either SQM was truly selling one year contracts at the bottom, or perhaps they're taking a little bit of a discount for their, for their sales volumes. But I do think they'll be able to ramp up to the 180,000 tons. When I'm looking at the hydroxide project with West Farmers, I'm forecasting another few years of development I think they're going to take their time. They're going to want to get it right. They're not just going to want to start construction. And so I think this will be a a slow moving project that I wouldn't expect to enter production anytime until the, you know, the last few years of the decade. Given that the last time we had a very short market, even low quality material sold at high prices, 
it tends to gravitate down to what's what's the upgrading cost and that that's basically your your price differential and in some cases it's not even that much because people just want lithium values what do you think will happen with sqm's price in 2022 we saw them in the last cycle have a much higher price than Albemarle because of the way they do shorter contracts. Do you think that they show more, much more price upside than their competitor in the Atacama? I, I think they will. I think, and, and I would look beyond 2022, I think SQM will continue to enjoy um, more and more rising prices over the next several years. That's likely to outpace a company like Albemarle who while they're moving to more midpoint and cap structures, uh, they still do have quite a bit of volumes on fixed price contracts. So, you know, that's why I say Albemarle's pricing strategy is suboptimal. I'd prefer all lithium companies were to sell like SQM does. It, it allows them to maximize upside in a rising price environment and take advantage of it, which I think is what investors want when they buy lithium stocks. We right now are seeing almost a 600% disconnect <laughs> between what's published as the China spot price and what some of the contracted volumes you can track in import or export statistics are selling for. What do you think happens? How high do you think spot goes, if you have an opinion on that? And where do you think contracts there's contracts don't rise as quickly because there's a lot of relationships involved. There's an acknowledgement, I think, on the part of lithium suppliers that we need to take advantage, but we can't take too much advantage or, we, you know, we may injure, if not kill the golden goose. But that's that's my terminology. How are you looking at it? I, I think that's right. You know, I, I would go back to what LiveVent Management uh, said on their earnings call last night, which is, Lithium suppliers want to find a long-term price that makes sense for them, um, but is not as high or anywhere near the current spot prices. I think that could be somewhere in the 20s, at least for the next you know, few years in the above 20 kilogram range. I think that's where you could see contract prices go. With spot price, it's such a small amount of volume that it's, it's really difficult to, to find, you know, is it going to go up to a hundred? Is it going to go back down to 30 or 40? It's, it's tough to say, but I, I use spot prices as more just of a directional indicator yeah. for where contract prices are going and not necessarily as something I forecast. I completely agree with that. The inter- most interesting comment I I've seen it, and it's not just one bank, it's, it's multiple banks that seem to be afraid of this trend and saying, well, we think prices will moderate in 2022, some say 2023, but I have a hard time with that because I I think contract prices are just getting started in terms of increases. And if Albemarle's right, I mean, we're never going to know if demand's 1.5 million in 2025 for the reasons you already expressed. There isn't going to be that much lithium, so it's it's kind of how many angels dance on the head of a pin argument. But I, I'm not worried about demand destruction. How do you feel about that? I think it's just going to be delayed or deferred demand because this is a electrification is a trend that's not going to go away. 
So when I think it was Credit Suisse came out with this report that said something to the effect of, you know, when does demand destruction happen? And how do you view demand destruction or do you think it maybe it's just it's just delayed? It's just the Tesla waiting list becomes four years instead of one. Well, I I do think we're likely to see more demand delays than destruction. However, once you're getting you know, EV adoption into the mid-teens and above 20%, then that's when you start to get into the mainstream consumer. And you may lose some mainstream consumers who aren't EV enthusiasts. They just think, oh, you know, I, I'm interested in EV. It might save me a little bit of money. But ultimately, if you need a car today and you look to buy one and you know, the quickest you're getting is 18, 24 months from now, I think that will lead a lot of consumers who, you know, need to buy a car immediately to go elsewhere, which is why I do think you're going to see a lot of hybrid sales since it it still offers you cheaper fuel. It still offers you, you know, with, with falling battery costs, a slightly lower total cost of ownership, especially with higher oil prices on higher gasoline prices around the world, but you are more likely to be able to get the car quicker than you may with some pure battery electrics. Let's look at that point from a a little different lens. If you're an OEM and you suddenly have a aha moment, you say, you know what, I'm not going to be able to get as much lithium as I need for the next five years. Do you then change your offerings? Do you go with a smaller battery pack or do you, you focus more on hybrids because that you can have more quote unquote electrified models. Do you think those kind of decisions may be in the offing. I don't. I don't think that probably impacts Tesla, but it, it it certainly could affect, particularly the European OEMs. I, I think so. Um, I think you're likely to see more of the. And when I say hybrid, I'll, I'll differentiate. I don't think you're going to see as many plug-in hybrids. I think you're going to see more traditional hybrids. You know, things like a Prius, but but having that you know, initial, the smaller battery pack in trucks and SUVs. You know, when you look at China's regulations, they did change how they classify traditional hybrids so that they're not as much of a negative credit when the automakers are calculating their credits at the end of the year. You know, you look in in the U.S., um, you can make trucks and SUVs. A lot of automakers already have traditional hybrid in their lineup, so I think it'd be easy for them to build off of that. And so I think you're likely to see the rise of those vehicles if the automakers are unable to secure their lithium supply. Since you are a lack analyst now, um, where do you see, how do you see the startup going at Kachari? And what is your prediction for Thacker Pass? So at, at Kachari, I'm expecting them, they will enter, uh, finish, I guess, mechanical completion will be the technical term, and then, you know, begin to ramp up their plants uh, in 2022. I'd imagine if all goes well, they would start to get qualified um, either late 2022 or sometime in the first half of 2023, and then begin to ramp up production from there. I wouldn't be surprised if this timeline gets delayed by a quarter or two since, this is a completely new Greenfield project and we've seen delays all over the industry with new projects. So, you know, with Brian, it seems to be unpredictable, a little tricky on how to 
you know, best set up the processing plant. So I wouldn't be surprised there, but they are continuing to make progress. And so I'd expect by 2025, that phase one is well up and running. Thacker Pass, you know, it'll be really interesting if they seem from a regulatory standpoint to continue to be making progress, getting the approvals. They're going to have to, you know, fight the environmentalists in court. Um, but I think, is it next month we're awaiting a decision um, on, on the lawsuits? And if, if all goes well, which based on whenever you talk to the management team, it seems like they're following every rule to a T and are trying to set up the most sustainable plan they can, you know, which, which I think puts, puts them in a very good position to continue to win government approval, win lawsuits, and eventually be able to, you know, stop development and move into the construction phase within the next couple of years. I think if the United States is going to have any credibility about being serious in having homegrown lithium production, that Thacker Pass has to happen. And, and not just Thacker Pass, but other, other projects as well. But I, I think you can't have the, I want 50% EV penetration by 2030, but no, no lithium produced in my backyard. Those are not compatible uh, situations. I, I believe Thacker Pass is going to go forward. Let me ask you, I mean, you, you mentioned qualification a couple of times in your comments. And my personal experience, and, and I asked cathode experts that I have on the podcast the same question. It seems to me that qualification is a serious thing, but it also seems to me that there are different markets in the world that have different rigor <laughs> in how they do qualification. And in, in a short market, uh, qualification doesn't really seem to be a barrier to selling product because in this world right now, there's somebody in some jurisdiction who will take your product. What is your view as an EV guy? So you're, you're working through how the battery thing works and a lithium guy what is your view on qualification when and when people you know you'll hear anywhere from three months in a tight market to a year and a half depending on who you're talking to and i i tend to think that when people start saying well we're not going to have the hit our sales targets because because of qualification in this market that is an excuse not an answer <laughs> I, I tend to model in anywhere from six months to a year for new greenfield projects. And, you know, perhaps in a tight market, the qualification process could actually happen sooner. But, you know, with, when I'm modeling it, I'm more modeling a delay in ramping up production volumes. So that, that's how I think about it. Um, certainly, if it were to go on longer than that, then I would think that's more of a producer specific issue and less of you know, a general market qualification process. But at the same time, while, you know, maybe some, some uh, buyers would accept a three-month qualification, I'd imagine for the serious, the big buyers, you know, your Panasonics, your LGs, they're still going to want to take a thorough look at any new project and, you know, make sure that it, it meets their standards, especially when, you know, they're trying to ramp up their battery production and, don't want to be on hook for on the hook for faulty batteries um, to their customers. Well, that certainly, and you've you brought up probably the hardest company to sell to 
in in Panasonic. And and I, I agree. I don't I don't think in, in the Panasonic chain there's a lot of uh wiggle room, but I I, I have personal experience on the other end where uh in, in in the case of Lithium Americas, I think because Gangfen gets the lion's share of that production and they have they have homes for it and they will take everything they can get because they have a very broad-based lithium business and they can upgrade it. I don't see for a Kachari that qualifications a barrier because I'm ab- absolutely confident Gangfen will take everything they can get in phase one. That's just my opinion. One last question. What is the hardest part of analyzing the lithium market for you? For me, the hardest part is trying to figure out where each company's price is going to go. You know, we all, we all know directionally it's going higher, but, you know, it then from there, you really have to get into company-specific forecasting, looking at the different pricing strategies, looking at who's selling what type of material, what's the mix of, you know, material going into batteries versus not going into batteries, carbonate versus hydroxide. And so, you know, for me, that's really been uh, the biggest challenge is how to take this rising price forecast where we know spot markets that continues to set, you know, all-time highs. We know contract prices will rise, but, you know, how do, how do you apply that to each company specifically? And not just for 2022, because a lot of them give you decent enough guidance to model it, but what about 2023, 2024, and 2025? That's that's what I find to be the biggest challenge. Okay. Reasonable answer for sure. Rapid fire. We have been in COVID for two years. Tell me one positive thing that's happened to you because of COVID. Well, my daughter was born in March of 2020, uh, the week before Chicago went on the citywide lockdown. So for me, being able to work from home uh, just meant that I got to spend more time with my daughter and I've gotten to do that for, you know, now nearly the past two years. So I think that would be the, by far the best uh, positive thing from COVID to happen to me. Have you binged any series during COVID? Is there any particular, are you a Netflix or one of the streaming services fan? Oh, definitely. Um, let's see. My wife and I, Probably, we don't watch a ton of TV, but when we do, um, we've been watching a lot of older comedy shows. So, you know, The Office, Parks and Rec, New Girl, just just something that at the end of the day, if you can only watch, you know, a few episodes, it's it's just something you can have a nice laugh and end the day on a, on a funny note. You're probably watching a lot of videos with your daughter, though, aren't you? I mean, when my kids were, when my daughters were two, I didn't really have much control over what I watched. It was usually uh, a Disney uh, classic. Disney, uh, Coco Melon on Netflix has been, is what is her favorite show right now. And then Sesame Street. So yeah, during the day, she, she gets control of the TV. But after she goes to bed, then, you know, we can, we can relax with the comedy. Seth Goldstein, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Always a pleasure having Seth on. It has been eight days since we recorded that episode. In the interim, Russia has attacked 
invaded the Ukraine. I have uh, friends from my days in Asia that uh, are from Ukraine, live in Ukraine now. And uh, I'm hoping and praying for their safety and hoping that this all works out with as little bloodshed and pain as possible. Thanks for listening.